Um, as we get ready to jump in the word today, I'm going outside the box today. You ready? Outside the box, we're talking about Thanksgiving this morning. <laughs> calm down, calm down. It's going to be fine. Here at Meadowbrook Church, we are all about helping people take their next steps with Jesus, and we focus on doing that upwardly, inwardly, and outwardly. We've been unpacking this vision statement over the last number of weeks. Uh, we took a break last week. We had Eric Rose with us from Gain. Eric and Julia were here sharing for Mission Sunday. Wasn't that awesome? It was good to have them here, hear what God is doing all over Africa through the ministry of Gain. Uh, we're going to just stick a pin. We have one more week to do on the outward piece of this, and because it's Thanksgiving, we thought, let's just wait. We'll pick up on that next week. And so we're going to pause that to do Thanksgiving. But we are wanting to help people take their next steps with Jesus upwardly in our connection, our communion with him, inwardly as we are renewed and restored and he does his work in us. And then outwardly as we love our neighbor, as we love even our enemy, as we serve others and as we share the gospel. And so we are wanting to be growing in all of these areas. And so we'll pick up next week just wrapping up our little mini sermon series on that. And because it's Thanksgiving, we're going to talk about Thanksgiving. And so there's different ways we go on Thanksgiving Sunday. Sometimes the calendar just picks your sermon for you. It makes it super easy. Uh, I don't need to discern what the topic's going to be today. I just need to discern how the Lord would have us talk about it today. But when it comes to Thanksgiving, we know, we remember the story uh, of the very first Thanksgiving, right? The pilgrims crossed the ocean. They were fleeing religious persecution. They were looking for a place where they could worship Jesus in freedom. And so they landed in Massachusetts in the States, and they had sort of made it through this terrible journey. They had made it through their first year there. It had been a very difficult journey. It had been a very difficult winter. And so they had a Thanksgiving dinner, a Thanksgiving feast, and they offered up prayer, and it was a time to be thankful. It was a time to reflect on what God had done and how he had led them and sustained them. And then from there, Thanksgiving was kind of sporadic. Uh, once in a while in America, they would call for a time of Thanksgiving. It wasn't an annual tradition by any means. It was just something that they did from time to time. And where that began to shift was actually right in the middle of the American Civil War which was one of the, the bloodiest wars in all of human history. It was an incredibly vicious conflict. And there does seem to be something extra tragic. All war is horrifying, but extra tragic when it's civil war, because this is a country tearing itself apart. And so in the American Civil War, there was much uh, debate and anger and, and differences of opinions on slavery in different parts of the states. The southern states decided that they were going to separate and start their own country. And so the two sides went to war the North against the South, and, and again, brother against brother, right? And families are divided, and a country is divided, and the fighting was so vicious, and for a long time, uh, there, it just wasn't going well. Like, there was no kind of end in sight, and the battles were just getting worse and worse and more and more horrifying. And Abraham Lincoln is the one at the, the helm of the northern states at this point. He tried to keep the country together. It didn't work. The country is split apart. This horrific, bloody war is happening, and he's trying to bring some hope to the people. And he has this vision that someday America might be reunited again. We might be able to get through this conflict. We might be able to be brothers and sisters again. And in the middle of it, he issues a proclamation in November. And as he is uh, starting to, to figure out a way to talk to his people, he begins his proclamation not by focusing on the war, but actually by focusing on all the good things that are going on. And he doesn't ignore talking about the war. He does that too. But even in the middle of this horrific conflict, 
He also says, hey, even in the midst of warfare, uh, even in the midst of everything that's going wrong right now, look, our fields are plentiful. We have lots to eat. We're not starving to death. And, and even though there's conflict here, there's peace in other areas of America, and, and there's peace with all other nations, that, that other nations are not jumping into this conflict, and so the conflict is limited. And he just starts to list things that, that we have to be thankful for in the middle of this struggle. And in the midst of all of the, the rough stuff that's going on, he also acknowledges this is the, the most painful thing we've probably ever been through in our lifetime. And, and we understand that, that this is just uh, something that's really difficult to get our heads around. And yet we also look to where we see God's blessing along the way. And in the last part of his proclamation, he says this, as he lists the blessings that he can see, he says, no human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens." And so that is the beginning of where America begins to celebrate Thanksgiving regularly. Obviously, they do it in November. We do it earlier in October. But there's something about it that just hits me every time I read it because it is, again, not denying the reality of the difficulties that they are going through and yet nonetheless finding thankfulness, finding hope, acknowledging that even in this awful situation, I can still see God at work. I can still see his hand moving. I can still see his blessings. I still see signs of his mercy, even if everything is not exactly uh, roses and harvest all day long right now, even in the midst of the darkest thing we've ever been through. Nonetheless, God is still God, and nonetheless, God is still good. I can see his blessings, even though my whole life doesn't feel blessed right now. I can still see those signs. And so as we are um, reflecting on that, as we get into our text today, we're going to be in Ezra chapter 3, by the way. You can turn your Bibles there if you've got a Bible. Ezra chapter 3. And as we are walking with Jesus, as we are maturing in our faith, as we are growing as people in him, maturity doesn't mean that we gloss over the bad stuff. It doesn't mean that we don't feel the bad things. It doesn't mean that at all. Maturity means that even in the bad stuff, we hold on to hope. And we hold on to Thanksgiving. We learn that as we get older, as life gets more complicated, not everything fits into nice, neat little boxes all the time. Uh, we watched recently with our kids the movie Inside Out. Remember that one, the Disney one that sort of talks about our emotions and, and kind of is a, it was a really good teaching tool, actually. And part of the premise of that movie is as we get older, life gets more complicated and our emotions get more complicated. And part of what we learn as we get older is that you can hold varying emotions together at the same time. I can be happy and sad in the same moment. I can be frustrated and hopeful at the same time. And these things all kind of swirl around inside of us. And so Abraham Lincoln, in sadness, in grief, in pain, was still able to make his way to thanksgiving and to thankfulness. And so as we are uh, about to jump into our text, just a little bit of backstory before we jump into Ezra. So as we jump into Ezra... 
historically, at this point in Israel's history, Israel has been in exile. Israel had been kicked out of the promised land. God had brought them out of Egypt. If you remember, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments or Prince of Egypt, how vividly these movies paint this picture of God coming down and bringing Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders, bringing them through the Red Sea, bringing them through the wilderness, bringing them into the promised land that he had promised to Abraham. And as that happens, as God brings them there, he gives them his law and he says, this is what righteousness is. This is what holiness is. And he gives them a set of commandments, and those commandments come with blessings for obedience, and they come with disciplines for disobedience, as all law does. And as that happens, one of the things that he promises them is that you, if you walk with me, you will have the land. The land that I promised you will be yours. I will keep you in that land. I will sustain you in that land. But if you turn from me, if you run to other idols, if you abandon the faith of your fathers, if you walk away from my holiness and my law, if you do that enough, God had said, I will send you prophets. I will warn you. There will be warning consequences. But if you continue down that path, he says, eventually the land will vomit you up. That's the language that God uses. Eventually, you will lose the promised land. And so Israel, over the generations, would sort of go through cycles of walking closely with the Lord and rejecting the Lord and following other idols. And when that happened, God would send prophets to call them back and to warn them and tell them, you know, you're going down the wrong path. Come back to the path of righteousness. And sometimes they did, and sometimes they didn't. And once they had done that long enough, the warnings from the prophets began to shift. And they said, you're about to see the promise of God fulfilled. And when we talk about promises of God, we tend to focus on the great ones. But this was a promise that if you don't uh, come back to the Lord, you will lose the promised land. And Israel still did not come back. And that is exactly what happened. And so uh, first the Assyrians came in and took over part of Israel. And then later the Babylonians came in and they took over the rest of Israel. And they went into Jerusalem and they had broken down the walls and they had grabbed the people. They had sent them out and scattered them amongst the Babylonian empire. And they had burned the temple of God to the ground. They'd stolen all the gold and everything out of it, burned it to the ground. And so Jerusalem is left desolate. Jerusalem is left in ruins, and the people of God are taken into captivity and scattered amongst the empire. They've lost their temple, they've lost their city, they've lost their home, they've lost seemingly their their core identity because they are no longer one people, they are a scattered people. And yet, even as they are being scattered, the goodness and the promise of God come forth. And through Jeremiah and other prophets, God says, I will bring you back. I will bring you back. Jeremiah 29, 11, right, which gets quoted everywhere. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper in you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. That's not a verse for us about all of our hopes and dreams will come true if we walk with Jesus. That's a promise given to Israel that even though you're going into exile, God will bring you home again. You'll get the land back. He will do it. And then the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are the books where Israel is brought back into the land. The promise of God is fulfilled. God brings them home again. He gives them the land back. And they're great stories to read just to see the redemptive power of God at work. And so Ezra takes place as Israel is being restored into the land. God moves the heart of the king to say, you know what? Uh, The Lord has moved me to bring the people back into Israel, to reestablish Jerusalem, to rebuild the 
temple of the Lord. And so Cyrus lets the people come back. Ezra is one of the ones who comes back in leadership to get Israel established again. And so as we think about all of that, then let's jump into our specific text today. We're in Ezra chapter 3, and we're starting in verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good, his love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. I mean, other than like sports in our culture, I can't think of anything where you hear sound from far away like that, right? We're a very subdued culture. We, we're very quiet in our emotions. We're very stoic. Um, there's not really things where we're like weeping in the streets or making a lot of noise and excitement. That's just not something we do. In the ancient world and even in the Middle East today, uh, I think they're actually a little maybe healthier than us, <laughs> just kind of letting out whatever's going on inside. They're at least getting it out there. And so it's a bit hard for us to imagine that piece but there's a mixed bag of emotion going on in this story, right? There's some who are very, very excited. There are some who are very, very worshipful. And then there are some who are very, very upset. And I have taught on this in my younger years, and I often hear it taught on in the sense of, um, you know, look at those stupid weepers who missed the point of what God was doing, right? Look at them crying on this great day. We don't want to be like that. We want to be like the thankful ones. And of course, we do want to be thankful always. But interestingly, the text doesn't actually uh, pass any judgment on those who are weeping in either direction. It doesn't say, hey, they, they are sad on a day when they should have been happy. Uh, it doesn't say it was a great thing either. The text just describes it as something that happened. On this day, some people were really, really excited. On this day, some people were sad. And it doesn't actually say the sad ones missed it or anything like that. That's often what we take away from the story. But I'm not so sure about that. And we'll unpack that as we get through it. Ecclesiastes says this, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. And then verse 4, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And of course, it goes on and on, a time to live, a time to die and everything. But there's a season for everything. The Bible does not ever condemn grief or grieving or mourning or sadness. That's an emotion. We feel it. It's something that happens. Even Jesus wept when he walked upon this earth. We're actually told in scripture that we are to grieve with those who grieve. So not only is grief okay, but the rest of us are actually supposed to enter into the grief of other people when they're grieving. In empathy, we're supposed to come alongside them. We're supposed to feel it with them. We are supposed to mourn with those who mourn, even as we rejoice with those who rejoice. And so there are groups of people at this great event, this foundation laying of the temple of the Lord, which for decades has laid desolate, which there are people still alive who remember the old one, who would have been perhaps 
perhaps even witness to the day it was burned to the ground, who have lived in exile for all these decades, coming back together, theoretically should have been just a wonderful celebratory day. And yet at the same time as the celebration is happening, there is grieving going on for some. And the text does not judge them for doing that. The word of the Lord just doesn't do that. And so as we just touch on a couple of verses in our text today, starting in verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. There were things laid out in God's law for how the temple was supposed to be. David, who was a worshiper, had really built up the worship ministry of Israel. And so in the old temple, and there's a replica of it there, the old temple, the one that got destroyed by the Babylonians, worship was very, very prescribed. Uh, Only the Levites were involved, and actually only one branch of the Levites were involved. And they were just full-time worshipers. They just did music all day long. Uh, That was their whole existence. They didn't have to do any other work in the fields or anything. They were just worshipers. That was their job. It sounds pretty good, eh, Jeff? Just 24-7, we're just going to be music, all about the music. Uh, Our team would love that if that were an option. And so, uh, so as the new, te- the, the new foundation is being laid for the new temple, um, what's fascinating is even after all these decades away, uh, the worshipers know what to do, right? They're, they got their clothes on, they've got their instruments, they are there and they're ready. Uh, they're acknowledging this is a big day, and as the temple is being laid, worship is coming back in a big way to Israel. And so they are all lined up, and they are ready to go. And as it's happening, verse 11 says, with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good, his love toward Israel endures forever. And those lyrics, he is good, his love toward Israel endures forever, show up over and over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament, sometimes worded slightly differently. But if Israel had a favorite worship song or a favorite worship theme, it was this. And we see it in the Psalms, and we see it in First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. We see it in the historical books. They love to sing that song, the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. They sing it over and over and over again. The Lord is good and his love endures forever. And that's not to say they didn't also sing about his holiness or sing about his righteousness. They didn't sing about his anger even at times in the Psalms. But the song refrain that shows up over and over is the Lord is good and he loves us forever. They come back to that over and over and over again. And once in a while, someone will say, oh, you know, modern worship is too fluffy. It's just all about God's love. It's like, no, that's a biblical idea. Israel sang about his love all the time. They sang about his goodness all the time. And again, that's not all they sang about. But this is the refrain that they kept coming back to. They would sing about his goodness and they would sing about his great love. That was what they loved to sing about. And so on this incredible day where God's redemptive plan is unfolding in front of their eyes, the promise given through prophets that he would restore Israel to the land, the worship erupts and they lean back to one of their old favorite worship songs. He is good and he loves us forever. He is good and he loves us forever. That's the song they chose to sing that day. As that happens, second part of verse 11, all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So there's an eruption of worship. There's an eruption of just, it sounds like spontaneous praise. There's just a wonderful excitement in the air 
when you think of how long uh, you've been waiting for God to answer your prayers in your life. And, and Israel at this point has been waiting again for decades for God to answer this prayer in their lives. And now it's happening. The day is happening. The promise is being fulfilled today that Israel was dealt with by God because of their sin. Their sin had consequences and so does ours. Sin has consequence, but God is merciful. Sin has consequence, but God's promise, his goodness, his mercy doesn't change. And so even as they are living out the effects of their, uh, of the consequences of their sin, that God in his goodness and in his love is restoring them back again. And so when they start singing, we're going to sing about his goodness and we're going to sing about his love. Right? Even though we earned what happened to us, God even then is merciful and forgiving. He is keeping his promise to us. And as we read through the Bible from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation, it is the story of God's incredible redemptive power at work in creation. It is God who sets things right, that we are sinners in need of saving, and God is the Savior. God is the one who does it. His redemptive work is, is being lived out in this story, just as it's being lived out through all the pages of Scripture. God is undoing the things that we have done, and he is making it right. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks to the Lord in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so they are doing that on this day. God is at work. We see what God is doing. We are giving thanks. And I mean, for most people on that day, giving thanks was probably not that hard, right? It was probably quite easy. It was probably overflowing because it was an exciting day. When things are going great, thanksgiving is easy. Right? When our prayer got answered, Thanksgiving is easy. When our prayer didn't get answered, Thanksgiving is not nearly so easy. But we are told to give thanks in all circumstances. We don't have to give thanks for all circumstances, but in all circumstances we give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And you've heard me say this before. We don't always know what God's will is. Uh, part of living this life with Jesus is, is discerning his will and reading the word to find his will and discerning where the spirit is leading us. And so we're not always crystal clear what God wants us to do in every single such situation. But one thing we know for sure is that he is, it is always his will for us to be thankful because there is always something to be thankful for. And so we give thanks in all circumstances. When I'm, I'm overflowing with it and it's easy because things are going great, then I am thankful. When I'm in the valley and it's a struggle and I'm working my way along, I still seek to be thankful. I find the things to be thankful for. And if I can't be thankful for something sincerely, I lay that thing aside and I find something else to give thanks for because the Lord is good and his love endures forever. There is always somewhere in life where his goodness and his love are showing their faces. Last part, verse 12. Whoops, we just leapt ahead. You wanted to get out of here quicker and you were excited for a minute there. Verse 12 and 13. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sounds of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard from far away. 
So there couldn't have been that many who remembered the old one, because again, they'd been gone for decades, so they must have been probably quite young uh, when the exile happened. But there are some there who remember it. And again, we're not even given a crystal clear reason why. It just says that they remember the old temple, and they are weeping when this one is being laid. We get a bit of a clue in the prophet Haggai. In Haggai chapter 2, uh, the prophet Haggai was on around in this time and, and lived and prophesied during this season of Israel's uh, existence, and Haggai makes the comment that, uh, you know, the, the new temple is really nothing like the old temple. The old temple was so much more glorious. The, the former house was so much more uh, just extravagant, I think, and, and so that's, that's kind of a clue that helps us in just uh, making that clear, I think, that, that they're weeping because they just remember how amazing the old one was. And they they are seeing the new one being laid, and the new one isn't going to be as glorious as the old temple was. And and perhaps weeping just for the last decades and and everything that they lost. And and either way, it's not quite the the united, happy, fun time, right? And and we know just as we live life that, you know, even in our own families, we don't always look at things the same way. There are people experiencing the same event, but they're experiencing it very, very differently. And so while most people are rejoicing, it sounds like there are some who are grieving. And again, the word of God does not judge them in their grieving. It just notes it as a fact. This is something that happened. And again, as we said before, we know from scripture, grief is not a bad thing. Grief is not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of a lack of faith. Grief is a real emotion. It is something that even Jesus did and and that we are called to do. And there's a a tone throughout some of the Psalms that talks about, uh, you know, grieving. And in the prophets, to to return to the Lord with tears and, and things like that. That grief is just, it's a part of life in this broken world. It's something that needs to happen. I've learned pastorally, uh, having walked with people for many years, that when we don't grieve, the grief shows up some other way, some other, other you know, behavior or attitude or, or whatever pops up, that grief is a real emotion. And, you know, we can judge these guys and say, hey, you know, on this amazing, wonderful day, uh, you know, why weren't you just happy? And, and yet grief was what came up and that was real and, and that was authentic. And I certainly hope they made their way to Thanksgiving, even as they grieved. But grief is something that, that we just experience. It's just a part of this life. And, and as these guys are doing it, it seems that the reason they're grieving specifically is because they are comparing. And they're saying, oh, what we had before is not as good as what we have now, right? What we, the, the new thing, sure, it's great, but it's nothing compared to the glory. Like Solomon's temple was a, a wonder of the world. And, and people came from all around to see it. And when they opened up the temple and dedicated that temple, like the glory cloud of God fell down. And, and it was such a, a thick and intense presence of God that the priest couldn't even enter the building. And there's all this history and all of these promises, and it's all just wrapped up in this place of the temple. And the temple had been, had been gutted for all of its valuables and burned to the ground. And as much as I'm sure there must have been something happy to be home and to see this new thing, they are grieving what was. They are comparing what they have to what they used to have, and the response is grief. And I mean, any time we are comparing and playing the comparison comparison game, uh, grief is something that very easily pops into the picture at that point. Right? If I'm comparing my life to your life, my finances to your finances, my marriage to your finances, or my marriage to your finances, <laughs> I don't know what that means, but 
If we're comparing to others, it's easy. I mean, we can feel envy, we can feel jealous, we can, we can long, um, but grief, I think, comes in pretty easily. Why can't I have what they have? Right? Why, why? I work hard. Why don't I have what they have? I want my marriage to look like that marriage. I, I want, you know, they're getting their prayers answered here. I'm praying for that, and I'm not seeing my prayers answered. Anytime we start comparing, uh, I think we open ourselves up for grief. And rather than being grateful for what we have and where he is at work and what he is doing, we can so easily fall into that. We're told this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. So wise guidance from the word of the Lord that, that when we compare ourselves to one another, uh, it's just, it's never, it never works out well. Right? Whenever we're comparing ourselves to others or comparing, you know, our, our careers to others or, or our family to others or whatever, uh, Terry Bone would put it this way. He says, the minute we start playing the comparison game, there's only two things that can happen. Either we start to elevate ourselves over the ones we're looking down on and then we get self-righteous, or we start to feel bad about what we don't have and we begin to lower ourselves and, and look to others with envy and jealousy and grief. And so playing the comparison game just is never a good idea. And it's, it's just something we do naturally, I think, as humans. But no, like, don't compare yourself to someone else. Carry your own load. Wherever you are right now, that's where God has you. And that's not to say we don't look for more. It's not to say we don't strive for more. It's not to say we don't work hard. It's not to say we certainly don't pray and seek him. But we don't need to play the comparison game. It just, there's something about it that just pulls us out of seeing what God is doing right now. Right, where he is at work right now. I came across this quote uh, this week. There's a, an account that I follow called Sketchy Sermons. Anyone know that one? It's worth following. Sketchy Sermons, just exactly how it sounds. And uh, it's an artist, and he just uh, you know, follows a lot of teachers and, and reads a lot of stuff, and will just kind of pull out cool phrases that he likes or, or pithy sayings, and then draw a little picture with it. And it's just, it's kind of just fascinating. And there's a lot of good wisdom that he shares through it. So I found this one uh, this last week. This is Kendra Leanne. I don't know her well. She's a Christian author. But she says, thankfulness is an incubator for contentment, and contentment destroys comparison. When we aren't comparing our lives to others, the pressure is off, and we can live a life more simply. Thankfulness is an incubator for contentment. When I'm thankful in all circumstances, it gets my eyes off of my circumstances that aren't so great because I'm acknowledging the ones that are good where I see God at work. And when I'm thankful in those moments, my eyes get off of myself, my eyes get off of my problems, and my eyes get locked on him and where he's working. So in that sense, yes, thankfulness is an incubator for contentment. I don't have everything I want in life, but I see God at work in these things, and I'm grateful, and I'm giving him that thanksgiving. A friend of mine said to me years ago, he said, I just think whenever we give God thanks, he just always shows up to receive it. He's just always interested in receiving that from us. And, and I tend to think that that is true. Thankfulness is an incubator for contentment, and contentment destroys comparison. Because when I start being grateful for what I have, even if it's not everything I want, when I start being grateful for what I have, I stop comparing, I stop looking at others, I stop thinking about what I'm missing, and I start seeing God at work. And that's always reason to be thankful. 
And so grief is going to be part of life, of course, and that's inevitable. And I think comparing ourselves to others, or in this case, comparing you know, what we used to have or, or what we once wanted and, and we haven't seen happen exactly the way we wanted, whatever the case may be, whenever that is happening, there, there's going to be grief associated with it. And grief is something that has to come out, but we also don't just want to stay in the grieving. And I do hope that whoever was there that day who was grieving eventually went, okay, you know what? We, we will mourn what we've lost. We do need to grieve. We did lose something significant. We have gone through a traumatic experience all these decades. We are grieving what we have lost. Good. That is proper and that is right. Loss always needs to be grieved, but we don't want to remain there just in grief. We want to always be moving towards Thanksgiving, excuse me. It gets our eyes on the right place. And so as the temple is being laid, as some are rejoicing and some are grieving in that day, loss is worth grieving, right? That, that just should happen. It has to happen. When we don't do that, again, it shows up in other ways. And so it, there is a biblical call in scripture to weep. There's a biblical call for lament. There's a biblical call just for honesty and, and authenticity um, and to find ways to let the grief out. So our loss is worth grieving, but his faithfulness is always worth praising. And he is faithful even in the middle of our grief. Come on up, worship team. We're just about ready to wrap up today. We got turkeys to get in the oven and things, so we wanted to get wrapped up in good time today. Our loss is always worth grieving, but his faithfulness is always worth praising. And I know sometimes... um, you know, we, we're always, as Christians, wanting to be honest. We're always wanting to be authentic. We're wanting to be open. And, and some of us, I think, we're geared a bit more naturally towards what's wrong in life. And some of us are geared a bit more naturally towards what's right in life and what's good. And sometimes the one who can see the good aren't really being honest about what's not good. And, and they're not being honest about problems. And they're kind of just pretending they're not there. And sometimes those who are more drawn to seeing what's wrong aren't really being honest about what's good. And they're just focusing on the problem. And they're just putting all of their time and attention and energy there. And to grow in honesty, to grow in authenticity, is to, to be able to do both. Is to be very honest about where life is hard and where we're grieving. And to be honest about problems and to be honest about what we're anxious about. That is to be honest. But it's also to be honest about here's all the things I'm thankful for. And here's all the ways in which I see him working. And here's all the ways where I can see his blessing and all the ways where I can see his goodness. We're not wanting to be one or the other. To grow in authenticity, to grow in honesty is to grow in both of those things. And so if you're more prone to see the problems, start working on seeing the good things and acknowledging them out loud. And if you're good at seeing the good things and maybe like to gloss over the problems, your job to grow in honesty is to start to be honest and and work on speaking out what some of those struggles are. And we'll grow in that together. We call this message the gratitude and the grieving. Both of these things are going on in our text today. We want to feel our feelings. We want to be honest about that. But we do not want to miss out on what God is doing. Even in the midst of the hard times, even in the midst of the sadness, we don't want to miss out on what he is doing. And so thankfulness just keys us in the right direction. Thankfulness keeps us, even in the tough times, it keeps us coming back to him. It keeps us searching for where he's at work. It keeps helping us dig in for signs of his goodness, signs of his promise, signs of his faithfulness. If loss is worth grieving, his faithfulness is always worth praising. This story that we're reading today, again, you might be somewhat 
familiar with it, if you've been around church for a while, it's miraculous what's happening in this story. It's miraculous. It is a miracle of God that is unfolding in front of them, that even in their sin and as they're reaping the consequences of their sin, God was not pleased to leave them in their sin. He was not pleased to leave them in the promised land. He brought them back and is reestablishing them in a safe place as his people, rebuilding the temple of the Lord. It's a miracle that's happening. Even if we were grieving what we had that we've lost, there's still a miracle in the moment to be thankful for on that day. And I do hope the grievers, even as they were being authentic in their grief, eventually made their way to thanksgiving. Part of maturing in our walk with Jesus is learning to be authentic in, in both ways. To be honest about where we're struggling, to be honest about what we see as a problem, to be honest about our fears and our anxieties and our griefs, that's part of what we're wanting to grow in. But we also have to be growing in our authenticity and our honesty about who he is and what he's doing and where he is at work. And so as we get ready to wrap up today, we're going to close with a little bit of worship. We're helping people take their next steps with Jesus upwardly, inwardly, and outwardly. And we, as we think about next steps, all we're talking about today, uh, I'm just going to just give you a couple thoughts as we get ready to wrap up. And it's really, really simple. It's that it's Thanksgiving weekend, right? It's a natural time for Thanksgiving. It's right in the name. It's built into why uh, we're getting together and, and having our meals and seeing our family and all that stuff. Um, make some time today and either out loud or maybe written down. But find time to write down, here's the ways where I see God's blessing at work in my life right now. If Abraham Lincoln could find things to be thankful for, even in the midst of the Civil War, we can find things to be thankful for wherever we're at and whatever we're going through. And so find some time either maybe to share with someone that you love or to write it down if that's uh, an easier way for you to communicate that. But find the ways. And if you need to, hey, also be honest about what you're grieving right now. Be honest about what you're anxious about, but make sure you're taking time to land on here's where I see God working. And you know what I've learned is that as you do that regularly as a habit, it actually gets much, much easier. It's like a muscle. You get, it gets way easier to see where God is at work and he begins to show you where he's working that maybe you wouldn't have noticed before if you weren't looking for it. And so we want to be as honest as we can be about what we're feeling, even the tough stuff, but always, always, always moving to Thanksgiving because we are called to give thanks thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. Would you stand to your feet with me, please? As we get ready to wrap up, we are going to worship him some more, and let's just start. If you're distracted today because you got places to be and, and things to do, I understand that. Uh, we got a long drive ahead of us ourselves, and we got lots to do in the next day or two, but let's not walk away from this opportunity to start being thankful right now, just as we get ready to go today.